Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today we're talking about animal senses. But this is a very special episode because joining me today is a science journalist for The Atlantic, Pulitzer Prize winner for his coverage of COVID-19, and author of the book An Immense World, which explores the hugely diverse way in which animals perceive the world, from the catfish that has taste receptors all over its body, to the knife fish that sees the world using electricity, from elephants who smell with their immense trunks to snakes who smell by whisking scent in with their tongues. Welcome to the show, Ed Young. Hello, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here. I am a big fan of your articles. They are immensely helpful for me as I am researching the podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted. So I have read your book, An Immense World, and I absolutely love it. I think it really, it embodies so much of what I try to talk about on the podcast, which is getting people to understand the world of animals, kind of put themselves inside of the minds of animals. But it, it can be very difficult sometimes to do that because animals are so different from us, So especially maybe the less 
charismatic, gregarious animals, it can be hard to relate to them. Uh, and it can be really hard to describe what might be the experience of animals when we're trapped in our own, you know, human brains. We can't get outside of our brains. But as a science writer, you have to try to get inside the heads of these animals. So how do you go about doing that? Um, right. Well, with some difficulty, um, it, it is it is very challenging. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of discussion around how animals think, um, you know, how, what they might feel. Um, but, you know, even on a, on a very basic level, like how they, how they sense, what they see, what they hear, what they're capable of seeing and hearing, um, there's a huge amount of variation there. And, and we, don't, we often just don't really think about it. I think there's this very um, reflexive tendency to assume that animals are just seeing and hearing and feeling and smelling the same kinds of things that, that we are. And, and that's not true. Um, th this whole book is about why that's not true. Um, but to sort of really grapple with why that's not true is immensely challenging. Like I can, I can look at studies. Um, I can see what the what science tells us about what kinds of things an animal can um, can sense. But to really actually get into the head of that creature, to think about what a bat um, feels when it flies through the air, what what an electric fish. Um, feels when it, it when it detects the ways its own electric field is warped by the objects around it. You're never going to be entirely able to do that, and so there's always going to be this chasm between what we experience and what other animals experience. And the only way to jump across that is with a feat of imagination. And I think there's something sort of beautiful about that. It, it's you're never going to be able to completely do it. It's always going to be a struggle, but it feels like such a worthwhile thing to to struggle against and to sort of devote mental energy towards. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think it takes a lot of creativity, imagination, and compassion to try to imagine what it would be like to be one of these animals. And I think in your writing, that creativity and that compassion for animals is really infectious. So like, for instance, I have a dog and in your book, An Immense World, you wrote about how their sense of smell is so pivotal to their whole quality of life. Mm -hmm. My dog loves to smell the nastiest, nastiest, rankest <laughs> thing she can find on our walk and just huff yeah. that smell. And it's usually something horrifying like, you know, uh, some animal dropping with maybe some cigarette butts mixed in there. <laughs> and I... You know, it, it's it always kind of irked me, but now I think, okay, well, for her, she's exam. It's like viewing a piece of art for me, maybe mm -hmm. like going to yep. an art gallery and taking all it all in. She's going to a smell gallery, and for her, this piece of poop that has like cigarette butts in it is like some amazing piece of art for her to experience through smell. <laughs> right, it's like Michelangelo's David, right? Right, <laughs> right. so. I, I feel so I feel much the same way. I have a dog. He's a corgi. His name is Typo. Aww. Um when whenever we're like on a walk or in the dog park, whenever he does that thing where he sniffs something and then he drops and like rubs his <laughs> back on it, right? We have this joke that like it's never a good thing. You no. know, it's not like someone has just recently spritzed like lavender on that spot, right? <laughs> like it's always gonna be some poop or like something threw up or like there's a cigarette butt or something like that. 
Um, but but as you say, I think smell is so central to the life of a dog that um, those acts of exploration, even for things that we might find gross, are, are really important to them. You know, I've seen dog owners like yank their dogs along walks because they, they sort of treat it as exercise or, or, you know, pull their dogs away from sniffing um, another dog's genitals, for example. And all of those acts are just a normal part of a dog's behavior. And they're so profoundly linked to their sense of smell. A dog is an amazing sense of smell. Um, It's, you know, olfaction um, smell is, is primary for them in the way that vision is for sighted humans. And if we deprive them of chances to use their nose, I think we, we sort of deprive them of a, of a, like a very essential part of their dogness. You know, there have been studies showing that dogs are happier, like more optimistic, less anxious when they get a chance to use their noses. And I think like we we benefit too. You know, when I watch Typo on a on a walk, like we walk around the same bit of neighborhood all the time, like streets and houses that I pass thousands of times over. And that now feel boring to me, but they're not boring to him because they change all the time. The, the smells that he gets are, are constantly shifting and he smells like, you know, now it's spring. I watch him like examine the, like newly emerged plants with just this incredible delicacy. And I watch him like examining bits where other dogs have peed or pooped. <laughs> and And I see that as like, you know, me check scrolling through my Instagram feed. You know, it's like me checking on social media. It, it's an entire. It's right. It's a. It's a deeply social activity. Like you can tell which of the neighborhood dogs have been around. Probably like what their current state is. Like what their health is like. Lots of stuff about their lives that kind of like autobiographical information that I have no access to. I don't even know. You know which dogs were there, but he does, and and so every walk, if he's allowed to sniff, becomes like an adventure, a, a social occasion. I love that. Yeah, we have a park where I take Cookie, uh, and Cookie is not. She's like a little some kind of spaniel chihuahua mutt, so she's not big on exercise, anyways. But I'll take her to the park, and she just loves the whole the, the sniff experience of going. And she's very particular. And it's so interesting because, you know, I may want to go somewhere where it's nice and shady or there's some flowers, but she wants to go to just this uninteresting to me patch of dirt. But I'm sure there's some kind of calling card that's been left, some sort of interesting right. marking from another dog. And she's just investigating it for, you know, minutes. And it's it's really, I think, kind of once you really put yourself into that mindset of, them exploring the world, it does become more interesting for you, observing them, seeing that fascination and their eyes kind of light up when they find a particularly smelly patch. Right. Like, I, I think all dog owners, like, know this feeling where you're just going for a, where you're going for a walk and the dog is, like, happily trotting along and then suddenly, like, just grinds to a halt like, and, and, like, flips around and starts investigating some random patch of, like, ground or sidewalk that looks completely indistinguishable to every other bit of ground or sidewalk, but clearly has something that is, like, deeply enthralling to them. Um, and... You know, I think there's a few ways you could react to that. You could sort of go, oh, God, you know, we need to go on a walk and like <laughs> yank them away. But I think if you really start to consider what they're doing, like it, it does it does show you that there's um, that 
even parts of the world that we that are familiar and boring and mundane to us are actually rich with information are you know sort of wondrous and extraordinary through the senses of other animals and that's like that's a a feeling that i've tried to capture in this book throughout that um paying attention to how other animals sense the world reveals the world that we know in a completely different light. It shows you like flickers of the magical in the mundane. Yeah, it does really feel like there's this whole secret world that we are not really aware of until we actually pay attention to animals. There are always jokes about a cat or something being able to see ghosts or having extra senses, but it is (laughs) I mean, maybe not the ghosts part, but the extra senses, or at least the same senses but used differently, are very true. And, you know, I I think it's when we move beyond just like domesticated animals, it's so interesting how their world, uh, even for these like extremely intelligent animals like elephants, can just be, have this whole hidden uh, aspect to it that humans don't necessarily understand until we actually study them. I really loved that example you had in your book. Uh, It was the studies of Dr. Lucy Bates, who Mm -hmm. found elephants expressing confusion over a kind of magic trick uh, Lucy Bates and her (laughs) team did, where they made made an elephant teleport. Right. But only for these elephants. Do you want to describe that study a little bit? Yeah, so um, elephants, like dogs, uh, have this very powerful sense of smell. They obviously have that trunk. They're constantly exploring with it. And so Lucy Bates did this experiment where she followed like a herd of elephants, waited for one of them to pee, and then like waited for them to leave, and then scooped up the, the urine-soaked soil and put it in a piece of Tupperware, and then drove round to find like either the same herd of elephants or a different herd, uh, like Cut, cut them off, dumped out the um, the pea-soaked soil in front of them, and then waited. And, and what happened was, if um, she did that for a completely different herd of elephants that was unrelated, they would like examine the soil and then be like, fine, and move on. Uh, if it was um, the same herd... Um, they would examine the soil and be like more interested. It's like, you know, they recognize that it's a family member. But specifically, it was, if it was the same herd and they knew the elephant who left, who left that scent was behind them, they acted very confused <laughs> because they have an awareness of, um, of who, of their, their own family members, who's around them, and that awareness is cemented through scent. So if they can smell, if they know that, you know, like elephant Joe is be- like way behind in the herd, and suddenly they smell elephant Joe ahead of them, they're like, wait, wait what? What? <laughs> uh, how? Um, uh, right. And so uh, I love that for, for several reasons, right? So firstly, it, it shows that principle we talked about that like this random bit of soil contains rich information um, to an ele- to an animal that can uh, that has the right nose for it, um, and it's and it's rich biographical information too, right? It's it's information about who uh, who is around and where they are, um, and and also that. There's there's a, there's a lovely interaction here between the senses and the intelligence of the animal, right? So so the the sense um, 
some animals have all kinds of extraordinary ways of perceiving the world. But when you tack on, when you tack that on to like long-lasting memories or just you know advanced cognition, you get these wonderful little interplays, um, like like what the, these elephants did, being confused by a magic trick that humans have performed. Um, yeah, I, I also love that we probably wouldn't know about this awareness that these elephants have. This very it's a very advanced form of cognition to recognize an individual and know where that individual is spatially and also be able to reason out that, okay, if they're behind us, how could they have jumped ahead in time and gotten ahead of us? That doesn't make sense. So it shows that very complex, rich intelligence. But if we hadn't thought, or at least if Dr. Lucy Bates and her team hadn't thought to investigate their sense of smell, something that to us is not as important in recognizing individuals or understanding sort of time or spatial reasoning, uh, we wouldn't have discovered this aspect of elephant intelligence. So being able to understand the, you know, not look at an animal's intelligence through our human kind of framework, but through the animal's framework, I think would reveal a lot more to us about how intelligent they are. Oh, t- uh, totally. And I think this also reveals something important about the, the scientific method, which is that it is profoundly influenced by the kinds of people who get to be part of science. Like we sort of think of the scientific method, this is like neutral, objective thing. Um, but, but it's not. It, it's profoundly influenced by, by the, the, the types of people who are involved in science. And in this case, their own senses. So, so you're right. Many, most humans rely on vision above all other senses. And we sort of put that we, we map that onto the creatures we study. So with like an, in animal intelligence, there is this famous test called the mirror test where you're trying to see if an animal can recognize it's um, a, a mark that has been placed on its body in its reflection. And this has been you know, used as a, as a way, uh, it, this has been linked to everything, from all sorts of things like self-awareness, empathy, uh, and so on. But like, it only really applies, it only really works if the animal is visually oriented. And like people have tried this kind of test with, with elephants with mixed success. And maybe the reason is that vision just ain't that important for elephants. <laughs> like, you know, maybe if you try a version that, that, um, uh, that is uh, specifically related to smell, they do better. And, this, uh, you know, th- this kind of work has been done with dogs for for the same reason they do better at like smell oriented tests of self recognition than than visual ones so you know the, the humans have this very visual bias that affects how they think about the animals that they study and the kinds of research questions that they ask and it takes a little feat of imagination to actually think like no, what, what are the animals themselves sensing and how do we study that? And how do we craft experiments and, and studies that, that really pay respect to their different senses um, rather than just, you know, sort of shoving the, the round peg of animal behavior into the square hole of, like, uh, of, of, of the human umwelt? Yeah, I can imagine an alien species picking one of us up and maybe changing our smell, like changing our personal smell, which as humans, we don't notice that much. We do to a certain extent, but not much. 
And then not ha- seeing that we don't notice that change to our own smell and coming to the conclusion, oh, humans aren't self-aware. They have no awareness of self. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right, right. Like, you, you know, we, we talked about how um, um, dogs have, you know, are aware of things on the street that, that we aren't aware of. But it, of course, it works in other ways, too. Like every animal has its own little sensory bubble. Like we are aware of stimuli in the world that other animals are not and, and vice versa. So, so you're right. You know, there's a very simple example I give in the book where um, our color vision extends from red to um, violet. And we can't see ultraviolet light that, um, that uh, lies beyond the violet end of the visible spectrum. And for, for that reason, there's been a lot of mystique around ultraviolet. You know, a lot of scientists have said that it maybe it's a secret communication channel that animals use to to share messages that no one else can see. But that breaks down when you realize that actually most animals that can see color see ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. We are just the exception. So it's not really super special. It just happens to be another color and it happens to be another color that we can't see. And if you, you know, if you for a moment you imagine that like bees were scientists, <laughs> like bees, for a bee, the rainbow goes from green to ultraviolet. So they can't see red. And you can imagine a bee scientist thinking like, oh, these weird, like, you know, two-legged apes, they can see, I guess they would call it like ultra yellow, right? Like a <laughs> color that that they can't see. And maybe it's like really special. Maybe ultra, maybe ultra yellow is a way of, for them to like um, exchange secret messages that we can't see. And, and only after like decades of study would they realize actually a lot of animals can <laughs> see ultra yellow. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ultra yellow in the world and it just, it's just another color. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of that around um, where there are parts of the world that we don't experience and we think are like just kind of magical. And they're a little magical, but like they're only magical because they're, they're things that we don't have access to. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, The CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So there's that a sensory experience you talk about in the book called magnetoreception, that mm-hmm. being able to detect the Earth's gravitational field I'm really jealous of that ability because I get very easily lost. I'm, I, even with a map like two inches from my face, I can get lost. So I would love to have an internal compass like that. And I think, you know, originally it was thought maybe only, you know, few species had this, but it seems like more, the more we study it, the more it seems like a lot of animals have this ability and it it seems so magical to us but it it's, seems not that uncommon yeah um th- there's a lot of animals that can sense the earth's magnetic field um so songbirds definitely can do it a lot of species have, are, are known to do it and they use that that ability to guide their migrations um sea turtles can do it um there's there's some really interesting work suggesting that giant whales can do it um but yeah it so this so magnetoreception the ability to sense earth's magnetic field it's actually a, a very interesting and quite difficult case study because there's a lot of work here and some of it might be wrong. There's a lot of debate about which animals actually have this ability. Like the ones I told you, sea turtles and songbirds, I think are pretty, are pretty clear. Those are, those are pretty definitive. But there's a long list of other creatures that are said to have magnetoreception and there's, there's just a bit of, um, debate in the scientific community. And partly that debate exists because this is an incredibly hard sense to study. Like, firstly, we don't have it. And also, it's very unintuitive. You know, if I, if, if you asked me to explain to you how magnetism works, like, <laughs> I, I would, I would struggle, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, I can, I can show you, I can draw you like a t- textbook, picture of a bar magnet with like lines coming out of it but to actually understand it on a fundamental level it is hard and to appreciate then how that might feel to an animal like does there's this idea that um songbirds can actually see the magnetic field that they might have like an overlay on their vision that sort of tells them where like north might be and you know that might be true but it might not like you know in 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 either case it's quite difficult to to think about how that feels to an animal like does it do, does a does a migrating turtle always have a little like tug towards like where north is does it feel very differently um it for something like that which is you know entirely different a sense that we don't have it's not like you know trying to imagine a bee seeing ultraviolet it, it's 
it really taxes um, the, the boundaries of our understanding, as does the rest of the sense. You know, no one actually knows, like for vision, right? My vision is in my eyes. Um, it, it, the, the organ is clear. The, the molecules responsible for my ability to see are known and the way they work is clear. None of that is clear for magnetoreception. Mm-hmm. Right? There, are some, there are loads of theories, but the magnetic field penetrates our bodies. So a sense organ doesn't have to be on the surface. It doesn't have to have like a hole that allows it to access an environment. It could be anywhere. It could be distributed throughout my entire body. It could be hidden into, in my internal organs. It could be in my butt. Who, who knows? Um, all these possibilities are, are, are on the table, which makes it a fiendishly difficult sense to study. And so this goes back to our, our, what we talked about, about the, the, the link between imagination and discovery. The fact that this sense taxes our imagination so means that the process of discovery has been very slow and kind of jerky and erratic. And for that reason, I think kind of fun. Yeah, no, I, I think it's in a way it's comforting to me that we don't know things about the animal world because it really shows how rich it is. If we already had discovered everything, everything was a settled science, that would be, I think it would feel lonely because I think there's always this hope that we'll discover more things to make us feel like we're not the only thinking, feeling species on earth. And so I love it when it when there are these secrets because to me it feels like oh that this is another thing to try to understand and you know having that understanding of animals around us you know it, it makes me feel like hey we're not you know we're not the only thing around here we have a bunch of interesting creatures that have their own internal experience and we can actually try to understand that Right. And and the, the wonderful thing here is is that every creature has its own unique sensory world. So the amount of stuff that you could potentially learn is is almost is almost limitless, right? It's it's limited only by the number of species that exist. And wherever scientists look, it seems that they always find something cool. Um and and because sensory biology is such an, an old, rich field with a deep history to it, um, and because surprises seem to be just around the corner and, and infinite in their number, there's a lot of work on, frankly, like weird animals. You know, it's not like everything is just in like fruit flies or, or dogs mm-hmm. um, or elephants. Like the book also includes catfish and like golden moles Mm -hmm. um and you know there there are probably i i would hope there are animals here that like people have never heard of before and there's such a rich vein of literature to to draw from um there there was such a rich vein to draw from in writing this book because the questions are, are so fascinating um and like the people who study this who who work in this field seem to get like very easily drawn towards like weirdos um you know to to some random animal that they happen to like walk past it in a zoo or you know stumble across on a field trip and and they suddenly become and and throw like and and um uh, enraptured by like what by thinking about how that animal perceives and yeah I, I think there's it it meant it means that um it means that the book gets to be diverse and that I get to write about a lot of um a lot of strange and wonderful things yeah I mean I think that it is 
the the stranger the animal, maybe it gets harder to empathize with it, but the more fascinating it can be. So, for example, in the book, you discuss a scallop TV study where Professor Daniel Spizer put scallops in little scallop chairs and made them watch uh, TV. I love this study so much. I love to visualize a bunch of scallops in like a theater watching a movie. And what I love about it also is that it highlights the eyes of scallops. I think people can be quite surprised that scallops have eyes. Uh, in yeah. fact, they can have <laughs> over a hundred eyes, and that they are—they're beautiful to me. They're—they're they're like these little jewels, these shiny little. Yeah bright, bright blue jewels. And I love just finding a hidden secret where, you know, we're used to scallops, like you say in the book, is just kind of this tasty little cylinder of flesh on a plate, but it's an animal and not, and it has this sensory experience. And this, this scallop TV study is really weird, but really interesting. Could you uh, talk a little bit about it? Yeah, um, I, I love the study because uh, everyone involved is very clear that this was an absolutely absurd experiment to try. <laughs> and they, no one thought that it would work, but they gave it a go. And it and they found something really cool, which is that if you put scallops like on these on these little I don't know scallop armchairs and and, <laughs> and show them movies like just little um, little flecks of food like little particles drifting by on a screen, um, they you know they will react. Um, they'll open their shells. They'll extend their 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 little sensory tentacles in in a kind of curious way, and. Okay, so so to to explain what this means, um, as as we said, a, a scallop is a, a living animal. It is not just like a lump of flesh. The flesh is like the muscle of the scallop's foot, and but there's a whole other animal besides that inside the shell, and that includes eyes. It has rows of very beautiful, quite co- surprisingly complex eyes, and this experiment, um, the scientists in, in who who did it. Um, you know, thought that maybe the eyes are used to to spot passing food. Um, you know, scallops will filter bits of food um, pa- uh, floating past them, so maybe the eyes detect that and and allow the scallop to to um, om nom nom. Um, but um, what they actually think is that now is that the the scallops have these like sensory tentacles that smell and and taste and feel and the eyes are just a way of saying hey there's something interesting over there and the tentacles allow them to then explore with their other senses um which is really cool but i think like the the thing that's extraordinary to me about this is think try and think about what a scallop sees because the eyes are, like I said, they're surprisingly complicated. Like they they have um, reasonable optics. Um, so each eye has like, you know, nowhere near as good a vision as, as us, but they have decent um, image forming abilities. But the scallop's brain is really simple. Like the scallop is almost certainly not experiencing like a movie playing through its head in the same way that you and I are now like looking at the world around us. Um, so the, the way I, the way I, um, imagine this in the book, it's as if, um, imagine that every eye is like a state of the art motion sensing camera. 
Um, the camera is amazing and they all feed into this bank of monitors and the scallop's brain is like a security guard looking over this bank of, of monitors um, that, that gets the feed from the cameras. But, but here's the thing, even though each camera is actually very good, what it gives to the monitor is just like a yes or no. Did it see something or not? So the security guard isn't looking at this like wall of moving images. It's just really looking at this wall of like maybe a thumbs up or a thumbs down, depending on whether the camera has spotted something. So it's vision, but it's vision without scenes. And that's very hard to imagine because our visual experience is is entirely based on scenes, right? Like I, I'm looking around my the, a room in my house right now. Now imagine if you you didn't have that. Yeah. Imagine if you you could see stuff happening around you. You were visually aware of it, but you didn't have that that scenery playing out in your mind. I, you know, I I I can't. Like I really struggle to do that. But that I think is a much closer approximation of, of what a scallop experience is. You know this immediately reminded me of blind sight in cortically blind individuals. So that's mm-hmm. people who have blindness due to lesions in their visual cortex, but their eyes, their actual, like the their eyes and their that sensory organ is completely intact and functioning fine. It's mm. just the in the visual cortex where we process that visual information is damaged. And so people with this are will report not having that visual experience uh, just as, as if they had regular blindness. But when they do have a visual stimuli, they often will react subconsciously even though they're not experiencing seeing that thing. So uh, especially with object movement. So like they may react to a moving object but not actually report being aware of that so like they get a sense of feeling about you know movement but they don't actually have that conscious experience which is so it's so interesting and i i mean i think this is also kind of like what you were saying earlier how uh respecting sort of the diversity of human experience in science can be really important in understanding the world around us because i imagine that people with this experience may have more insight into that having that kind of like not having the visual experience that a lot of people have, but still have their eyes still reacting to the world around them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's such a, that comparison is is spot on. And it it makes me think two things. Like firstly, that there is this, there, there can be this very stark difference between sensing um, on and perception on the one hand, and then conscious experience on the other, and and we sort of, I think we're we're given to thinking that those two things are inseparable, but of, but of course they're not, and blindside is an example of that. So so when we think about, for example, um, you know, a songbird sensing the Earth's magnetic field, it could work in the same way. Like maybe it actually has no conscious awareness at all it just has this sort of reflexive set of behaviors that that guide it to where it knows north or south might be um you know there's there's a lot about the senses that 
could basically just be about detection without necessarily involving a, a conscious experience. Like there's a whole chapter in the book about pain and and how we think about that 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 um, draws heavily on that idea. Um, but I, you know, what you said about about blindside also made me think about. Um, the chapter in the book where I write about echolocation, mm-hmm. um, an, an ability that bats uh, and dolphins have and, and some other mammals, um, but uh, and including humans, right? So um, some blind people can absolutely echolocate, like not as well as a bat, but but pretty damn well. I, yeah. I met one of them. His name is Daniel Kish. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he, 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 is, he was blind from an extremely young age. And he walks around with a cane, but he also echolocates. He makes loud, sharp clicking noises with his tongue, and he senses the world in the rebounding echoes. You know, we we were walking along a street. Um, he knows when a tree branch is in his way. Um, he can tell me as we're walking along, like where houses are, where parked cars are, um, you know, where bushes and and fences are, um, and it's 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 amazing because I think like. You know, Daniel points out that there are even echolocation researchers who don't know that humans can do this, um, but but they very much can. Yeah, and and I think this again speaks to why this stuff is difficult to to think about and to um, to to imagine, um, because like a dog uh, or a, a songbird or an elephant. Like none of these things, none of these animals have language, right? They can't tell me about their experience. But but Daniel obviously can. You know, he he can describe what he senses, what, how how he experiences the world through echolocation. But even so, there is an enormous barrier there because he doesn't have any memory of of being sighted. I don't know what it's like to echolocate. So even though we have the same language, um, we're still trying to convey things that neither of us are really privy to. And because he grew up in a world with several billion sighted people, a lot of his language is visual. You know, he he uses visual metaphors when describing the way he echolocates in a way that, like, I can kind of tap into. But, you know, if he's describing something as, like, a bright or a flash, like... Who knows whether the two of us are using the same words to ref- to really convey the same kinds of, of qualities, and you know this is what I said at the start. There's always a gulf. There's always a chasm between our sensory experience and that of another animal, or in this case, another human who just happens to be sensorily diverse. Um, and that's why you know these these acts of imagination and just being thoughtful about how you conceive of other senses is so important. Yeah, I think sometimes people separate empathy and trying to understand other people from science. Like there's hard science and then there's emotion, you know, like emotional uh, intelligence and scientific intelligence. And I, I really think that does such a disservice to science because having having that emotional intelligence where you really want to understand another person I think is is such a key to be able to do good science because how do you come up with a good study that ha- investigates something that needs to be investigated without being able to connect to other people and their different experience and and learn from that? 
I hundred percent agree. I, I think the people who think that, um, who who think, you know, the the um, what what you said, the people who think that science is cold and detached and unemotional, honestly, are just terrible scientists. <laughs> Um, right? Like, I don't trust the quality of their work because, like we said, our, in this case, our senses, but more broadly, like our experience, our culture, our values, profoundly influence the kinds of questions that we ask, the way we design experiments to probe those questions, the way we interpret the, the, um, the returning results. And if you think that that whole process exists in a social and emotional vacuum, then you will be completely oblivious to the biases that you bring into it. And so, which is why I don't trust the work of people who think in that way, you know, because I, I think that there's a, a certain thoughtlessness there that leads to um, m misleading research. I mean, even in, in the field of animal sciences, um, there have been so many cases. I mean, there's tons in the book where um, people drew the wrong conclusions about what animals were doing for decades or even centuries because they just weren't paying attention because yeah. they were they were scoffing at the idea of um, of animals doing something vastly different. Um, many weird senses um, like echolocation, um, the, the electric senses of electric fish, um, magnetoreception, the, the infrared senses of, of rattlesnakes and many other animals um, have all been subject to this. You know, there's long histories of, of people thinking that the animals were doing all kinds of weird stuff aside from what they were actually doing because their existing understanding of the world and the limitations of their own sense organs, like cut off the possibility of thinking about the the much weirder, very different reality. Well, that's where the concept of blind as a bat came from. Uh, people would see right. bats kind of flitting about erratically as if they didn't know where they were going. But in fact, they are that erratic movement is actually quite calculated to hone in on an insect uh, as they're using their echolocation. And they're also, uh, as you point out in the book, they are not blind either. And even in the traditional sense, they can use their eyes, uh, but their echolocation skills are the most useful in hunting insects. But yeah, we had this misconception about bats being blind for so long just by misinterpreting their movement, the, the way that they move in the sky and assuming that uh, taking a straight path from point A to point B is the correct way to hunt something or, or to move around. Right. You know, people scoffed at the idea of echolocation when it first, when it was first proposed. Um, you know, there, there are great stories of like, um, you know, so like Robert Galambus, one of the, the co-discoverers um, being, you know, having a guy shaking his shoulders at a meeting <laughs> going, you can't possibly mean that, um, you know, uh, and, so, so Donald Griffin, the 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 other person um, who who pioneered the study of echolocation, um, wrote about this idea of um, echolocation as a magic well, a, a thing that um, 
just yielded one, kept on yielding like one discovery after another. But he also wrote about how um, scientists were often limited by the the scope of their own imaginations, um, and and sort of you know just just didn't even countenance the possibility that um, something weird uh, and beyond what they could could imagine was actually going on. And it, it's sort of ironic because like Griffin himself was very skeptical about the existence of magnetoreception as a sense, right? So we we're all kind of subject to this. So. In terms of the, the, the blind as a bat metaphor, I think part of that also is, is related to ableism. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, we, we, we think of like the kind of average default human sensorium as the norm and anything that sort of deviates from that as, as being worse. So, so blind as a bat is derogatory, not really just to bats, but also to blind people. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this assumption that like sight is good and a lack of sight is bad. You know, we talk about darkness as being a bad thing. You know, um, we we talk about we we equate blindness with um, with uh, obliviousness, with ignorance. Um, but of course, you know, blind people are profoundly aware of their surroundings. You know, they have um, you know uh, abilities uh, and and um, and awarenesses that. That sighted people don't possess and and sort of can't really and and often don't think about or, or underappreciate. And the same goes for many other animals that um, have de-emphasized vision in favor of other si- other senses. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot at play here. There's um, an anthropocentrism. There's ableism. Um, th- there's a lot that goes into um, some of these negative and and um, frankly wrong stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that assumption that you cannot have a rich inner world unless you have the senses, like the kind of assumed senses and the assumed state that a human should be in, right? Like, okay, we all need to be a certain way. We can't have any kind of cognitive differences or sensory differences. Otherwise, you must have a more impoverished uh, inner world is, of course, very wrong. And I think we are, as a society, kind of starting to reckon with that, this idea that, you know, having having a different perspective, having different cognition, having different sensory experiences is not something that robs you of, you know, that uh, richness of being. It's just, it is a different experience. You know, it's not... We don't have to have carbon copy experiences and um, as you uh, say, like the Umwelt as everyone else. In fact, having people who have different perspectives, different sensory experiences, different uh, cognitive experiences can be very enriching. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's this, I think there's this kind of very deep seated idea that like more is better when it comes to the senses. Um, and so colorblindness is a great example of this, right? There are loads of people who see a small, narrower range of colors than the average person. But, you know, that's no different than the vast majority of other animals, uh, or especially mammals, right? So, so most mammals are dichromatic, which means they have two types of color sensing cells in, in their eyes, as opposed to three that we have. So my dog, Piper, is dichromatic. He, his um, rainbow extends from yellow to blue um, with like whites and grays in the middle instead of greens. And that's what 
a lot of colorblind people have and it's fine like yeah. there's there's it's not the case that like having three kinds of color sensing cells is inherently better than two. And in fact, we know that's not the case, firstly, because so many mammals have only two. But also, like, there are many species of monkey in South America. So the females either are trichromatic or dichromatic, but all the males are dichromatic. Wow. Um, so there's variation in, in what kinds of colors even, like, a brother and a sister monkey can see. The trichromatic females are much better at spotting fruit from a distance but the dichromatic males are much better at breaking the camouflage of hidden insects. So there's like there's pros and cons of each, and it's definitely not the case that more is better. So if you think about like colorblind people, like there are things that people with colorblindness find difficult. Um, you know, a lot of tasks that involve um, colors, like I don't know, uh, you know, looking at paint swatches or um, sometimes electrical wiring, um, traffic lights can be confusing. Um, but, like, none of that has to be the case. Yeah. Like, colorblindness only becomes a disability because we've created a world that caters for the vision of trichromatic people. Um, you know, there's nothing inherently worse about uh, about being a dichromat versus a trichromat. Um it's just what what we choose to value and and accommodate to. Um, so yeah, in many many ways, I think this book is a call for empathy. It's a call for trying to understand the experiences of other creatures, but but also other people too. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You know, I had this question because, and this relates a little bit to also your coverage of uh, COVID-19, is that Mm -hmm. sometimes when people find out that, oh, you know, uh, COVID-19 may have had an animal origin, like, well, doesn't that mean we should cull this animal? Like, shouldn't we avoid researching them or, you know, get rid of them? Like, is it so bad if a species goes extinct if we get rid of the threat of COVID or something. And of course, I think there are (laughs) several things wrong with this one being like the idea that you could get rid of one species and eliminate an animal, like all animal reservoirs of a disease. And also this, like the jumping to the idea of destruction, you know, destroying something in the name of some kind of imagined safety, rather than trying instead to actually understand more how is the relationship between humans and animals leading to health crises, both in humans and in animals, and what we can do to prevent that? So, you know, you're you are someone who is both very uh, well versed in these zoonotic diseases, as well as you know the basically that we should respect animals and respect their rights to be here. So, what what would you say to someone who feels that way that like we should either be afraid of these animals or get rid of them when they are in our, uh, you know, territory or what we perceive to be our territory. Right. I, I think, um, right. I think it's, it's, it's a profoundly misguided idea. I mean, I can see why people think that. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 almost certainly came from a bat um, and bats in general harbor a lot of viruses that could potentially cause problems for humans. But, you know, a, a couple of things. Firstly, Bats are incredibly important and they play, you know, vital, irreplaceable roles in most of the ecosystems where they live. So you just can't get rid of bats. Secondly, there are a lot of bats. It's like, you know, bats are like a fifth of all mammal species and they're incredible creatures in their own right. Like the specific group um, that is, you know, that that SARS-like viruses are often found in have this incredible style of echolocation that is even like weirder and more advanced and more sophisticated than what like your average bat can do, which is already pretty spectacular. So there's that, there's, you know, there's what we stand to lose. But then there's also the fact that this idea assigns blame to entirely the wrong party. Mm -hmm. Like why are zoonotic events, why are zoonotic spillovers becoming more common? They're becoming more common because we have destroyed habitat, because we have encroached into the spaces where animals, wild animals live, and because we have crushed those animals into smaller and smaller ranges. Um, You know, it's like I said in one of my pandemic pieces, you know, it's as if we've, we've been crushing the world's wildlife in an ever tightening fist and what happens is that viruses start bursting out of that. But, you know, th- there's also the fact that we are reshuffling the networks of mammals and their viruses all around the world. Um, as the world warms because of climate change, um, species of uh, mammals that um, mammals are having to move in order to track new areas that have the environments that they were well adapted to. 
as this happens, species that never previously coexisted are meeting each other for the first time, which create opportunities for their viruses to hop into new hosts and then eventually into us. This has been happening for decades now. And we're sort of in the peak of that process as we speak, which means that the kinds of events that led to a new coronavirus ripping through the human population are becoming more and more common. And they're becoming more and more common because of things that we did, because of changes that we wrought upon the world. And if we don't fix those changes, you know, you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to drive the risk of pandemics down to zero by culling bats. If anything, you're just going to make the ecosystems where those bats live much worse, and you're going to lose the whatever spectacular way of experiencing the world those bats have. That you know, we look for the problem in the wrong place. In in that we try and shove responsibility onto others, and we try and look for quick, easy, sticking plaster fixes. The problem lies within us, and the fixes need to be much bigger and much more systemic. Um, so I think, yeah, unless we actually extend the full force of our empathy and ingenuity to the rest of the natural world and understand that we are a part of it and that we have had a profound influence in shaping it, then, you know, we're just going to experience more of these problems. Like that climate change phenomenon, the link between climate change and pandemic risk, what that tells us, what that should tell us, is that many of the big existential problems of our time, climate change, the sixth extinction, mass extinction of wildlife, um, uh, the risk of future pandemics, they're all the same problem. They're all, they're all facets of the same interconnected mega problem. And the responsibility for fixing that problem is on us, not on bats. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I, I you know, ultimately... Like I, I think is very evident in your book, this idea that our human experience is the only important thing is just very wrong. But in addition to that, I think it is it's important to remember that we don't our our sort of priorities and the priorities of you know our, our ecosystem are not necessarily in conflict. We can actually have a lot of solutions to our own human issues, our own problems by turning to our animal cousins and trying to both help them and also understand them. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, and in the in the last chapter of my book, I talk about this problem of sensory pollution, this idea that we have flooded the dark with light uh, and the quiet with noise in ways that really harm the creatures around us and that we, we don't really understand or appreciate. I mean, light... Um, has positive connotations with us and darkness has negative ones. You know, we, we crave more illumination, not less. But the amount of light pollution in the world is phenomenal and causes a lot of harm to insects, to birds, um, to sea turtles, um, to all kinds of creatures. And, you know, it, it hurts us too in ways that I think we don't really uh, appreciate. Like, so many people have never really seen the night sky, have never really appreciate, like, seen what the stars look like. Have certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, have never seen. Like, have you ever seen the Milky Way? I only saw it when I went to the sequoias and got really far away mm -hmm. from the city. And it was, I was 
I was so shocked that it existed. I when I was imagining the Milky Way, I just imagined maybe a few more stars. I had no idea how vast and bright it was and that that mm-hmm. would get drowned out by city lights. You know, even you know, it, when I was a kid living in the suburbs thinking like, well, it's not that bright out, why wouldn't I be able to see it? Uh it, it's it is shocking what you are missing in the night sky. It, it's it's really shocking and like that sight is just like transcendentally beautiful like i think the first time you see it because most of us have never seen it before it, it's it's just like achingly beautiful to behold but and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to see it like it's clearly visible in the northern hemisphere it's just that <laughs> the light from all of these distant stars from our own galaxy travels you know, countless light years, reaches Earth, and then gets washed out by the glow of our own buildings. And and I think that's, I think that's profoundly sad. Um, you know, we affect our own health, our, our own biological clocks by the lights we produce at night. And, and I think that the thing about sensory pollution that's really important is that unlike a lot of the other things that we're doing to the world, you know, unlike greenhouse gas emissions, um, unlike plastic pollution, um, environmental toxins, this is easy to fix. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, light pollution goes away when you turn the lights off. It, it, is a, it is literally a switch. We just have to care enough to want to fix the problem. Yeah, and I think there are other types of sort of sensory pollution that we're just like learning about, like the idea that animals that have a wider range of visual perception than we do can see sort of a halo coming off of of uh, power lines and mm-hmm. that to them it's this intimidating glowing thing not uh, you know where to us you know we may only kind of perceive a slight buzzing coming from it or like with birds like whose mating cycles are entirely dependent on them being able to hear each other uh, that's like the way that they can locate each other for mating and how that so negatively impacts their their breeding cycles when there's too much noise pollution if we don't if we don't even really understand what their sensory world is how can we have the empathy to know even what to change and i, I think i mean for me that is what is so important about books like yours and learning about these animal internal experience because it it is so vital in understanding our world and how to you know basically prevent our world from becoming uh dull and uh you know bereft of of this diversity of experience yeah and you know we 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 can choose something different like at the at the start of the the COVID pandemic, when 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 a lot of people were um, you know staying at home, there there was there was a lot of talk of um, there there were a lot of cases of people going, are there just more birds? <laughs> um, right, like loads of people said that, and it's not that there were just more birds; it's just that you can hear them now because everyone's being a lot quieter. And what what happens when you're quiet is is not just that you start picking up on sounds that might otherwise be drowned out, but you can hear over much longer distances. Um, You know, even just a few decibels less noise, you know, can double the, the radius over which you're hearing. And so sensory pollution is the pollution of disconnection. 
it disconnects us from the sounds of nature around us by shrinking our own sensory bubble. It disconnects us from the cosmos by drowning out the lights of distant stars. And, you know, it, it's, it's sort of ironic that at this moment, that moment in time when people felt isolated, um, in, in some ways, they actually were more connected to the world around them. Um, and I think like, you know, we should we should aim for that. I mean, not like the horrible, like not. I'm, I'm not saying we should aim for like lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. We should aim for being more connected through the world around us by expanding the the reach of our own senses um, and by going on these you know mental adventures and thinking about the senses of other animals. Yeah, I mean, circling back to what we talked about with dogs' perception, I enjoy my walks with Cookie a lot more uh, after reading the book and really thinking about how much fun she's having smelling these things. And I just watch her and enjoy seeing her reaction to things or like I'll leave hide little treats around the house and watch her like sniff. I see she catches the scent and she tries to find it. And it's it, you know, in that very simple, limited way, it's brought me so much more joy. And I think that once we, if we extend that past just the cute animals like dogs into, you know, all sorts of animals out there, even the, you know, the the maybe less beautiful ones like snakes and spiders, bats, although personally, I think bats are very, very cute, <laughs> you know, really kind of getting, feeling that excitement about watching them experience the world and understanding, hey, they have that internal experience it's like when you're a really young kid and you finally come to the realization oh wait there are a ton of people on earth and they each have their own internal experience and that immensity of understanding hey like i am not the only conscious human and there's so many other conscious humans uh and then like extending that realization to animals i think is a very profound and enriching experience yeah me too I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. This was wonderful. I love your book. I am eternally grateful for your articles as well, because without them, uh, this podcast would probably be a lot less interesting. Uh, so <laughs> where, can, when, where and when can people get a copy of your book? Uh, so An Immense World uh, is out on June 21st uh, in all the places you get books from, uh, preferably your local bookstore, but anywhere you want to grab a copy, um, please do. You can get the audiobook as well, uh, which is read by me. Um, so yeah, uh, it should be out uh, pretty soon. I hope you all check it out and I hope everyone um, enjoys it. I hope it brings a bit of joy um, to people's lives at a moment when I think we could all use um, more infusions of joy. Well, I can attest to that. I really enjoyed it. Before we go, uh, let's play Guess Who's Squawk in the Mystery Animal Sound Game. Every week I play a Mystery Animal Sound and you, the listener, guess who is making that sound? It can be any animal on Earth. So the hint for last week's Mystery Animal Sound was this. Though featured in The Silence of the Lambs, this fellow is not so silent. So congratulations to Joey P, Keegan H, and Remy H, who were the fastest guessers 
for the Death's Head Moth. So the Death's Head Moth uh, was featured on the poster for Silence of the Lambs. They have what appears to be a human skull marking their thorax. So to make that chirping sound, they actually inhale and exhale air, forcing it through their mouth tube, which are, was thought to originally be used to like slurp up sugary syrup, um, but it is now used to make sound and it can vibrate like an accordion. And this is a way of scaring away predators, so startling them and hopefully scaring them away. And due to the skull-like marking and shrill squeaks, it has become a figure in many superstitions. So, on to this week's mystery animal sound. Here's your hint. It has a prehensile tail, a hunger for eucalyptus, and for fresh meat. If you think you know who's squawking, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Also on Twitter at creaturefeatpod. That's F-E-A-T, not F-E-E-T. That is something very different. And if you leave a rating or review, I would be ever so grateful. I read all the reviews and they mean so much to me. And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exo Lumina Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows, I do not judge you. See you next Wednesday. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.